This episode is sponsored by the Learn Jazz Standards Inner Circle. If your goal is to level up your jazz playing this year and feel confident improvising over jazz standards, the Inner Circle has everything you need and more. With monthly jazz standard studies, a library of powerful courses, and a vibrant community of like-minded musicians, you're guaranteed to improve your playing every single month. Podcast listeners can get 50% off their first month when you go to ljsinnercircle.com. That's ljsinnercircle.com or find the link in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. On today's show, we have listeners of this podcast who have left me voicemail questions about music and sometimes otherwise, that's coming right up. Welcome to the LJS Podcast, where you get weekly jazz tips, interviews, stories, and advice for becoming a better jazz musician. And now your host, He's a jazz musician, author, and entrepreneur, Brent Bartstra. All right, welcome everybody. My name is Brent. I am the jazz musician behind the website LearnJazzStandards.com, which is a blog, a podcast, and videos all geared towards helping you become a better jazz musician. Uh, As always, welcome back to those of you who are regular listeners. Boy, do I appreciate you. Thank you so much. And if you are listening for the very first time, a special warm welcome. But I do want you to know that today's episode is a little different than the normal setting of these episodes. So definitely go ahead and listen to this episode. This is a fun one. This is a value-packed one, but definitely check out other ones as well. And today's uh, episode is is fun. It's an Ask Me Anything episode. I've asked uh, listeners like you to leave me voicemail questions about music or even otherwise, and I answer them on the show today. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, hey, well, I didn't know that I was able to ask you questions. Well, I sent an email out to the newsletter list uh, asking for those questions and a special link so you could record them. So if you're thinking to yourself, man, I would like to do this in the future, make sure you get plugged into the newsletter list. You can do that at learnjazzstandards.com forward slash join. Or if you're feeling like you already are signed up for that, uh, check your spam or promotions folder. Don't want those slipping away in there. This is going to be a really fun episode. I have a bunch of questions on today. They're a lot of fun. So I'm just going to answer as many as I can. And I'm so sorry for those of you where I could not get to your questions. There's too many of them to fit on one episode. We may do more of these in the future. We did something similar on episode 104 where I asked uh, you know, you to share your stories with me. Uh, but we're going to do more of these in the future. Don't worry. But I'm just going to get to these today. Uh, I've saved a few for actual full episodes that I want to do. I just thought the questions merited that. So you'll have to keep listening if you don't hear your question answered today. All right, really quickly before we jump into these questions, I'm going to get them all answered. Uh, We had a recent iTunes review, rating and review, five-star review from Dan Jazz Piano. He says, Brent does an amazing job of making jazz accessible for anyone, no matter your instrument, schedule, level of talent, or age. I've been listening to LGS for a few months now, and my jazz playing has already improved. I've restructured my practice lessons for better results. I've learned more standards in a few months than I learned in 15 years, and I've realized that I can improve and haven't peaked out yet at age 30. I'm a huge fan, Brent, and I recommend this podcast wholeheartedly to anyone that wants to be a better jazz musician or educator. Well, Dan, thanks so much for that r- really kind review. I do appreciate you. And for everyone listening, if you want to contribute, uh, 
a nice, kind rating and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening service, be sure to do so. It helps out the show. We're trying to get to 200 reviews on iTunes by the end of the year. I think we can do it. We're close. Uh, so go ahead and do that if you are getting value out of this show. Okay, let's jump right into Ask Me Anything. Now, do forgive some of the sound quality here. Everybody is, uh, you know, calling with different kinds of microphones and stuff. So not all of the audio is created equal. That being said, the content is great. Let's do our first question, which is from John from Scotland. Hi, Brent. It's John Elliott from Edinburgh, Scotland here. Uh, my question for the podcast is uh, on dominant seventh chords that are secondary dominance, i.e not on degree 5 of the key. Why is sharp 11 the standard uh, alteration that seems to be required? Uh, there must be some reason for this uh, musically. I can't work it out, but um, it seems to me that it always seems like the best go-to default alteration when it's not on degree 5 of the key. Thanks. Bye. Well, thanks for your question, John. And for those of you who are not familiar with secondary dominant chords, you can go to episode 121, learnjazzstandards.com forward slash episode 121 and learn more about those there. Well, John, I'm not so sure that I agree with you that sharp 11 chords are common uh, for dominant, uh, secondary dominant chords, which is essentially a 5-1 to uh, another diatonic chord in a key center series. So example, uh, if we're in the key of C, if we have D minor, we're going A7 to D minor 7. I don't know that I think that is the common alteration. You see altered chords where they have the flat 13 in there or the sharp 9 or the flat 9. I think those are more common. The sharp 11 is more of an eccentric sounding chord. You know, you do see that in Thelonious Monk compositions, but I wouldn't say that I would. I, I see sharp 11. So I, I have to disagree with you a little bit there. Maybe you have a certain example you're thinking of. Um, in general, though, I would say for 5-1 resolutions that flat 13 sharp nines flat nines they're more common they probably uh, you probably should use them uh, before you would use sharp 11 then again everything is in context so whatever context it is merits a different uh, kind of response let's move on to the next question this one is from phil from australia hi brent phil from australia um my question is when do you know that you know a tune well enough to go out and perform it so what would be the criteria you'd look at to know that you know a tune well enough to go out and sit in on a jam session or take it out publicly and perform it? Hey, Phil, great question. Now, I don't know if I have a real set of, you know, steps one, two, three criteria for it. Uh, I will definitely say, you know, make sure you fully know and memorize the basics. Like make sure you have memorized the melody. You feel really comfortable playing it. Make sure you've memorized the chord changes. You don't feel like you're going to, uh, you know, get lost. Like you have them memorized. It's, you're not questioning what the chords are. Make sure you've practiced along with the recording and you're able to keep your place and maybe you've jammed along with the recording. Uh, maybe you've uh, been able to play it along with the metronome and you feel comfortable that you know the chords, you know the melody. 
Now, if you're unsure of whether you're ready to be improvising in public over it, well, make sure you obviously have some some chops behind it. But I am in of the philosophy that it's better to take action to actually go out there and try playing than not to, because that's where we really learn the lesson. So if you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I should go to that jam session because maybe I'm not good enough of improviser. I don't know if that's your situation. You know, just go up there and, and try. Have some basic skills, but go up there and try as long as you know that tune. You know, at the end of the day, it is what you feel comfortable with. You know, if you're doing a really special performance where all eyes are on you, you might want to spend a little more time on the tune, whatever you're comfortable with. But action before non-action is my general philosophy. Hope that gives you a little bit of help. All right. The next question is from Jordy from somewhere. Here he goes. Well, improvising uh, on model tune like uh, so what? How do we know, how do I know, when a chorus finishes and the, the next one starts? Thank you. Great question, Jordy. Now, some of these modal tunes like Miles Davis's So What, where there are only two chords in the entire form and they go on forever and they repeat, it can get really confusing. You can get lost in the form. And I feel like that's the place where your question's from coming from. Um, I can understand that completely. So the first thing to do is make sure that you understand how many bars each uh, those chords are. So for example, uh, the first A section is just a concert D minor. Well, it's eight bar phrases. It's two eight bar phrases. So that's 16 bars total. Then you have an eight bar phrase of E flat minor. Then it goes back to a final eight bar phrase of D minor. Okay. So knowing just the numbers is probably the first place to start with. Now, the most basic thing you can do, and I don't suggest this for performance, is do, is to count, is to literally count the bars to make sure you have it. But ultimately, you don't want to do that. You want to be feeling it. And you know, if you have to feel it by counting, just feel beats one, and that will probably be the best way to do it. What I would suggest to you to do, to do is is just to put on the recording of So What Miles Davis and just loop that all the time, but consciously say, okay, now we are switching to a, e flat and check yourself. Did I get it right? Right? Because you need to feel those phrases rather than count them in the end. So knowing what the bars are, how long they last for, then being able to count them is the probably the next step. But the ultimate level is feeling and I think just the more you get familiar with the song, the better you'll actually feel those bars and those phrases. Listen to cues from the drums. Listen to cues from other band members. Okay. So it's not, uh, it's not an easy answer, but I really do think that experience and understanding of the tune will lead you to understand when to switch to those chords. All right. Our next question is from Osiel from Brazil. I'm Osiel, I'm from Brazil. Um, is, is there uh, something specific to warm up before to play a warrior song? Uh, what to do before a warrior song? Hey, Aziel, thanks for the question. I understood your question as what can you do to warm up to start playing a song? So uh, I do always suggest pattern exercises for technique. If you're just trying to get your fingers loose, uh, whatever instrument you play, just trying to get it loose, ready to go. I think patterns are a great way to go. We do this a lot in uh, my 30 Steps to Better Jazz Playing course. Um, it's just a good way to do things. Uh, I also demonstrate uh, doing some patterns in a recent podcast episode that I did. It was uh, episode 
episode 127 where I did a, a maintenance practice session. So, you know, I, I, I will suggest putting that as part of your routine anyways, and it's good to put that at the beginning. Now, as, as far as if it's specifically on a song, there's no need to really warm up to, to, to start playing a song. If you know the song already, just start playing it and, you know, spend time with it. The more time you spend with it, the more adjusted you'll get to it, the more warmed up you'll be. So for technique, yeah, patterns are good. There's a lot of other instrument specific things you can do, but just start playing the song and I think you're going to be ready to go. All right. The next question comes from Dan from an unknown location. Here he is. What non-music related jobs have you had while you were developing your career as a jazz musician? So the only non-music related jobs I've ever had were when I was in high school and I did some landscaping work. Uh, I was a barista at a coffee shop. I was a dishwasher. Um, absolutely hated all of it. I eventually just started teaching guitar lessons uh, to make uh, ends meet and start paying to go to college. So that's that's what I did. And I never looked back ever since then. Uh, I kept teaching. Uh, I you know, kept hustling gigs, kept playing gigs, kept networking. And then my career really developed into writing books. It came into, uh, you know, creating my uh, online uh, jazz education business, Learn Jazz Standards, among other things. But yeah, so not really a lot of non-music stuff. Uh, you know, just the, just the, those general high school jobs. Good question, though. All right. Next question is from Michael from another unknown location. Do you ever do your scores in tab? Hey, Michael. So I have used tabs. I have written tabs for my music before. Um, now, for those of you who aren't guitar players, tabs are essentially usually used for guitar players that don't know how to read. And it's numbers on, you know, represents the fretboard. So it can help you know what notes to play and where. Um, so I, I have used it before. So I did write a book for Hal Leonard, the music publication company called Visual Improvisation for Jazz Guitar. And the other than the reasons for marketing purposes, the book wanted the, the company wanted to have tabs. Uh, it actually was very appropriate because the whole book was is, is around the idea of shapes on the guitar and connecting shapes together and understanding that and making it musical. So it's actually really important that there was tabature so you can know where on the fretboard I'm talking about to play the notation. Um, I have done an etudes book, uh, self-published on Learn Jazz Standards, 15 Essential Jazz Etudes, where I did a tabs version. It, my feeling about tabs in general is guitar players use them too much as a crutch. Um, they, you should know how to read music and that's coming from someone I wouldn't say I am the best pro sight reader ever, uh, but I can read and I think it's important to read. So I know you didn't really ask for my opinion on this, but just so I can voice it to all the guitar players out there, I think it's important that you know how to read notation. Don't use tabature as a crutch. Uh, okay. So the next question is from Ricardo again, from an unknown location. Hey man. Um, um, my question is, how do you practice a jazz standard in all 12 keys? Because I can transpose the chords, but I can transpose the melodies very hard. Because I just got into jazz and it's kind of hard to transpose the melody. But the chords are very easy to do. But how do you do the melody? That's my question. Ricardo, I love this question for two reasons. The first reason is I think it's great that you don't have a problem transposing chords. That means that you have an understanding of how harmony works and that you're able to translate that harmony to different keys easily. So awesome. I'm glad that you have that side of things uh, down. That's good. Now, the second reason I love this question is because I can really help you out with this. Uh, like if you're having trouble with the melody, it's really simple. And this is exactly what I teach 
um, in my my course, 30 Steps to Better Jazz Playing, um, but I teach it in the free Accelerate Your Jazz Skills mini course. And for those of you who are interested in that, by the way, it's free, accelerateyourjazzskills.com. Uh, I teach the list process for learning jazz standards. That's an acronym. But one of the most important ones is singing, being able to sing the melody. Now, this has nothing to do with playing your instrument, right? The point of singing is it proves that you've internalized that melody. It proves that you've internalized it, that you actually know it. So you've listened to it a bunch, you've internalized it, and if you're able to sing it, then you really don't need you don't need your instrument to figure out that melody anymore. If you can actually sing it or hum it or whistle it by memory, then you're good to go. So all that you need to really do is figure out what's the first chord of the song and what is the first note in relation to that chord. For example, does the first note of the melody start on the fifth of the chord? So if the first chord is C major seven and it's starting on the fifth, that means it's starting on a G, right? So then just translate that. So let's say you're trying to learn how to play the melody in the key of F major and the melody starts on the fifth. Okay, well, that's going to be C, right? C is going to be the fifth tone of F major. So you know the starting note of the melody. Now, all you have to do is play that note on your instrument and then sing it from there. And then since you already can sing it, that means you can figure it out on your instrument from there. I hope that makes sense. It's really that simple. If you have that inside your head good enough and you know what that first starting note is in relation to that first chord, it's not going to be as hard for you. And oftentimes people just don't know the, the melody well enough and that's why they have a hard time transposing it. They're relying on some muscle memory uh, of the original way they learned it. And I, I can relate. There are some songs that I have learned in my past that I do not know them well to this day because that's how I learned them. I didn't learn them the right way. So it's really important to learn them the right way. So definitely sing and internalize first. And if you can do that, I think you're gonna have an easy time transposing the rest of them. All right, the next question is from Max from Austria. Hey, Brent. Currently, we have summer holidays in Austria. So that's the perfect time to practice all the things that I couldn't during the year because of stuff I had to do for uni. However, I feel like I have a lack of motivation since I haven't been practicing that much lately. So have you ever had a similar situation or struggle in your life? And if yes, what did you do against it? Hey, Max, of course, I definitely have struggled with motivation. It doesn't matter that I do music for a living. I, of course, there's times where I don't want to do it, especially because it's a job for me. Sometimes I'm just like, uh, you know, I, I want to take a break from that, right? Um, I think the weird thing about it is, is you wouldn't be asking me this question if you actually didn't want to improve in practice. The problem is, you don't want to practice. <laughs> and that's okay. That's that's normal. Um, because learning to play music and becoming better at music and becoming better jazz musicians is sometimes and oftentimes not easy. And, you know, we love to reap the rewards of things, right? But sometimes that uphill grind is tough. So, I mean, you're not alone by any means. And, you know, I've gone through this. Sometimes I still do go through this, of course. Uh, the things that I would suggest are setting up a goal. I mean, set up a project for yourself. You know, think of something that you want to accomplish and just do one thing and then figure out those steps to reach that goal. Again, that's what I do in my 30 Steps to Better Jazz Playing course. I set up these 
project goals, these master goals, these project goals, and when we have a practice plan that builds towards that. And that's so important for motivation because at least gives you something to work towards. I would suggest going out and listening to some live music. If you can do that, I would suggest just listening to the music in general. At the end of the day, I wouldn't stress too much about it. Pick just one small thing, even if it's just 30 minutes that you're going to work on for that particular practice session and, and just spend a little bit of time with your instrument, right? Don't, don't, as soon as it becomes stressful, then you probably shouldn't practice, right? Just pick one small thing to accomplish and then pat yourself on the back. Feel good about that. Don't force things. Just, you know, pick small things to do and pick a project. I think that's what it's helped me in the past. Maybe it'll help you too. Next question is from Joel from SoCal. Man, I've actually been to Southern California a few times this year. Uh, once I went to San Diego for a conference, and the second time was, uh, well, we, we ended up ending our trip in Los Angeles, me and my wife going through. And man, we like Southern California. It's cool out there. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're East Coast New Yorkers, but we like it out there too. Just a little warning on this clip. There's a weird uh, pulsing in the beginning of it, but it clears up a bit to the end. So forgiveness there. Hi, Brent. This is uh, Joel in Southern California. I was thinking the other day about the uh, the state of uh, music online learning the other day, and um, I was I, I had thought about how the different sites that I've accessed uh, target different areas. Some are basic. Some are more advanced. Uh, some are both. Uh, some focus on certain aspects of music like pop and some jazz, like learned jazz standards. And I was wondering if you foresee a collaboration between site owners uh, at some possible time, uh, you know, like other businesses uh, seem to do. One, one, one business is uh, maybe more uh, aggressive than others and they want more and they start buying others out and you know how that goes. And uh, my other question was, do you see the business growing to the point where you'll be able to hire people to take uh, some of the weight off your uh, shoulders? Um, you know, I, I kind of think that you do a lot of, you probably spend a lot of time answering emails and uh, doing site maintenance on your forum, uh, you know, this and that. It's all time consuming and I kind of see where those kind of things could be delegated. Okay, that's that's all I wanted to ask. Hey, Joel, those are great questions. So uh, to answer your first question, you know, we do collaborate with each other. There are different um, online jazz education sites um, out there. And yeah, a, a lot of us know each other. Not not all of us do, but, you know, we do reach a across to each other a little bit. And, you know, I've had some of them on my podcast as guests. You know, we've done some guest blogging with each other. I mean, there are things to do. I, I certainly would like to collaborate even more with some of them. I've even collaborated also with uh, just or at least touched base with some outside of the jazz arena, but are still in the music education realm. I think there could be a lot more of that. There's It's such a small field, right? It's such a small jazz is a is a small niche and then online jazz education is even smaller. Um so yeah, I mean we definitely do that. We definitely talk to each other some of us do. Um but yeah, I think there could be a lot more of that. Um to answer your second question, uh yeah, it it, it I definitely see that there 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 has been a lot of growth with learn jazz standards um as far as the business goes. I do have uh, a tech guy that works on a part-time basis that takes care of a lot of things, Justin. Um, you know, uh, there are a ton of emails I have to deal with, a ton of emails. 
I my my tech guy answers some of them. My wife helps me with some of them. I do some of them. It's it's overwhelming. You are absolutely correct. Uh, I do hire contractors to do th- certain things, uh, recordings for my books, uh, you know, design work for things. Sometimes I hire VAs to help me with uh, menial tasks that just. I I just could not spend the time doing right. So yeah, I I do hire out uh, a bit, and uh, would I like to do more of it? Yeah, I would for sure. Uh, it would actually uh, really lighten my load a lot. It's it's tough to to run something like this, but I'm happy to do it. Um, it's very rewarding, and of course, it is a, a big part of how I make my living. So I am appreciative to everybody who supports Learn Jazz Standards. Great questions, Joel. Thank you for those. The next question comes from Neil from Bend, Oregon. Brent, how you doing? My name's Neil. I'm in Bend, Oregon. Brent, one question I have is uh, looking at the harmony of the song and then thinking of the melody of the song. At the same time, my brain goes back and forth about thinking of how I would like to uh, create or at least mimic some of the melody as I'm playing it, but then I'm looking at the chord structure with the harmony and half of the brain is analyzing, half the brain is trying to be artistic. How do I get around that? And uh, I know that we look at target tones and tonal centers, things like that. But anyway, my my brain's uh, frying trying to figure out what's the best uh, tactic to use. Thank you very much. Neil, you are definitely asking the big age-old question when it comes to improvisation. How do we do it without thinking too hard about it, right? Because there's so much theory that we can use to help us break things down, to understand chords, how to navigate them, how to connect them together. There's uh, chord scale, there's chord tones, there's uh, guide tones, all those things that you suggested that can help us, you know, conceptualize jazz language or conceptualize the right notes, quote unquote, right notes to play in our improvisation. But then on the other hand, we want to be creating these melodies. And so you talked about, um, you know, using the melody of a song, which is something I always suggest is, you know, using a basis for your improvisation off of the melody. You hear great improvisers doing that. So there's that side of things and you want to think about the melody, but then at the same time, you want to be improvising your own melodies. There's so much that can go on in your head. And what I wish I could do right now for you, Neil, is tell you this magic three-step formula that is going to change your life and it's going to make everything easy if you just do these things. Unfortunately, I don't have that for you today. Um, if you find it out, I let me know because even I'd like to know that information. What I would say is the reason we study theory, the reason we work on chord tones and guide tones and all of this stuff is because when we're practicing this stuff is what's helping our brain start to understand, but it is not creativity, like you said. It is not creativity. It is the analytical side. And there's that famous Charlie Parker quote, right, that says, you know, first you learn your instrument, then you practice, 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 and then when you finally got to the bandstand, you just get up there and wail. And essentially what he's saying there is you put in all this work and you slow things down. You you know, the practice room is like the laboratory. You're slicing things up. You're slowing things down, et cetera, et cetera. But then when you finally get up there, you're not supposed to think about anything. Now, that's a tall order, and I totally get that. I would just suggest doing this. Keep learning jazz language. Keep learning solos. Keep learning licks. Take them in all 12 keys. Keep working on chord tones. Keep working on guide tones. 
do all that stuff. But the next time you get up to play in a performance setting, just try to play and not worry so much. And one exercise I would suggest for everyone to do is to just play free. And when I say play free, I just mean don't play over any chord tones. Just practice creating melodies. And if at the same time you are outlining chords just naturally, well, that's a good thing. But don't worry about that stress of navigating chord changes. That could be a really freeing experience to just spend a little bit of time just improvising melodies that don't have any limitations or constraints on them. On the other hand, it's also a great idea to practice with lots of constraints, which is one thing you can do. But sometimes we forget about that other side where we can practice just creating melodies, whatever we're feeling at the moment, and that can be a great help. But at the end of the day, realize there's a separation between analyzing, between you know outlining things, to actually improvising. But the more you do all this stuff, yes, over time, you will start creating melodies, just great melodies, just by improvising. But it's not easy. And if it were easy, everybody would be doing it right away, right? But I know that you're up for the challenge. I know you're in this for the long haul. So I think we're in good hands there. So I understand your frustration. I've been there before too. But just keep keep working on the whole spectrum of things. And I guarantee you that that overwhelm will, will start to dissipate. But you also have to train your brain just to, just to not worry and just to play. All right, the next question is from Eric from California. Hi, my name is Eric. I'm from Berkeley, California. And I've been wondering how you come up with cool bebop licks. Thanks. Hey, Eric, excellent question. Now, this is what I would say when trying to come up with bebop licks. You know, bebop is a style that you can define and break down with theory like like anything, kind of like I was talking about in the last question. You know, you can use enclosure patterns. You can, of course, use chord tones, all these things to, you know, try. There's the bebop scale. There's all kinds of different things that you can use to try to conceptualize bebop. But at the end of the day, if you want to play great bebop lines, I 100% would suggest just going to recordings and learning some licks uh, that you like. You know, go to a Charlie Parker recording or a Dizzy Gillespie recording or even some of the hard bop guys, too, and take a listen and find just something you like over a chord progression you like or a jazz standard you like and learn it by ear. And even if it takes you a little bit at first, you know, a little more extra time at first, it's going to be worth it. And then maybe try taking that into different keys because taking things into different keys, you know, I suggest 12 keys, can be really helpful for flexibility and to build your ear. And building your ear is ultimately what you want to do. So if you have that bebop language in your ear, it's not that you necessarily want to play the licks verbatim when you improvise, but the more of that stuff that you have in you, you'll be able to express it, right? It's the same with, you know, English. You know, you learned how to speak English probably from mimicking your parents, and the more that you you learned, then you went to school and you learned, you know, more sentences and, and, and you read books and you learned some vocabulary you didn't know. When you talk, you're not really quoting from those books, right? You're not quoting from other people all the time. You're coming up with it on your own. It's the same thing with learning bebop or jazz language. So I would suggest learning little licks. And one great thing to do is to document what you know about jazz language. I think it was, yes, indeed, it was back in episode 68, wow, long time ago now, where I composed a jazz solo from scratch. Now, that's not a, a lick. It was a whole solo, but you could do the same thing with a lick. And what I did is I just 
to the best of my knowledge, to the best of what I know about jazz language, composed my own material. And I'd done that years and years and years ago, and I and I checked that checked that out, and it wasn't even that great. But that's okay because it was I was able to see, oh wow, I've learned a lot about jazz language between that time and to the time that I you know made that solo, and that'll be the same thing for you. So try composing your own just with the knowledge you know. But to grow that language, keep learning stuff by ear. Okay, hope that helps. All right, the next question is from Emily from Sacramento. A lot of Californians today. All right, here she is. Hi, my name is Emily, and I'm from Sacramento. And my question is, um, I'm a beginning jazz flute player, and I was wondering if you had any tips on jazz improvisation, specifically for flute or any other lighter-sounding wind instruments. Hey, Emily, great question. Uh, Oh, by the way, my sister's name is Emily. Just fun fact. Anyways, uh, I would say, this is what I would say. I'm not a flute player. I'm a guitar player. Um, I would suggest seeking out your teacher to let you know what things are instrument specific to the flute that you should be working on, that you should be thinking about. Okay, so that's one thing. And those things aren't necessarily things that relate to jazz necessarily. Those are instrument specific technical things that you should be paying attention to. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is listen to some jazz flute players that you like. You know, I know James Moody. He was a saxophone player, but he also played flute. He's a good person to check out. There are others. And check them out just to see what they did. You might want to learn some of their material specifically because you might relate to it better because you're a flute player and and they're a flute player. So I would suggest that. Listen to jazz flute players and and try to mimic them yourself. But I would say, the third thing I'll say is I'm a guitar player, but as far as learning jazz goes, I, I actually have not even learned a lot of guitar player stuff. Like when I learned solos or licks by ear, I've learned some, but a lot of it has actually been other instruments, like saxophonists. The first jazz piano solo, or the first jazz solo I ever learned was a piano solo. It was Wynton Kelly's solo on Freddie Freeloader. Great solo, but it's not my instrument at all. Because when it comes to the jazz language, it's not necessarily instrument specific. And in fact, sometimes it can be really helpful to learn things that aren't your instrument because it'll give you a different take on how to play something. And that can really open you up on your instrument. That can also help give you an original sound, perhaps. So I would definitely suggest learn stuff from all instruments. You don't have to worry about just flute players. Just know some of your technique that you need to know on your instrument. Listen to other flute players. Just check out what they're doing. And then don't worry too much about how you're learning it then. It's really about learning the language. So I hope that helps a little bit, gives you a little insight. Next question is from Simon from Australia. Hey, Brent. It's Simon in Sydney. Uh, I'm trying to get gigs, and I'm finding it hard to know how to add value, as you'd say, to bar owners. How do I convince them? Uh, what points do I use to convince bar owners that our band, or our duo, etc., would add value to their establishment? Thanks, Brent. Top. Hey, Simon, great question. And I do have a lot of insight on this. I could almost do an entire episode on this. And if anybody's interested in that, you can let me know, comment on the show notes, or send me an email, learnjazzstandards.com forward slash contact. I mean, I could do a lot more on this. I, I do episodes based on the feedback I get often. Anyways, let's get into that question, though. The first thing that I would say is 
put on your business mind here because a lot of musicians struggle with this. They struggle to understand that when you are trying to play music somewhere and convince a venue owner to accept your music and your services, this is a business transaction. This is not just you getting out to play. So you have to have a real business plan in place for that bar owner, for that venue owner, if you want to succeed. Now, what you need to first do is identify what is that bar owner's problem. Well, the bar owner's problem may or may not be, I want more customers to come in the door. That's not always the case. Sometimes it's not. I've, I've had people hire me before simply because they just want a better experience for their clientele. They want to keep customers coming back. It's not that they have a traffic problem. They want to keep regulars. So there's different problems that different venues may have. Identify that problem. Now identify the transformation that you want your services to give that bar owner. And you have to make that very clear. If you want to sell anything, you have to identify the transformation. And and it's not to trick them into hiring you. It's the opposite of that. It's to show them that, hey, if you take my services, which in this case are my musical services, my performing services, if you take me up on this, this is what's going to happen to your business. This is this, and you have to believe, obviously, in your services. But this is what could happen if you give this a shot. Okay, so that's the that's the very basics of business one hundred and one. Identify the problem, then sell the transformation to that bar owner. Now, what bar owners, in my experience, really care about is they care about one thing and one thing only, and that is return on investment (ROI). And as they should. Why would they make a business transaction with you or anybody if it's not going to give them some sort of return on investment? So you have to show them that there is a possibility for a return on their investment, even if it just means better experience for the regular customers. So here is a potential business plan for your musical services. It may not be this at all, but here's just one that I'll come up with here. Let's say... The problem for this bar owner is on Tuesday nights, they don't have enough traffic. You know, they need, they want more people. Their Tuesday nights are too slow. So how are we going to get people in the door? Well, let's think about it. Who likes jazz music? Musicians like jazz music. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people, that there's, of course, plenty of people that like jazz music that aren't musicians, but musicians love jazz music. There's a, a plethora of reasons why. So what I would be doing is I would be asking in, in you know all the musicians in the Sydney area, I'd be asking you know some of your buddies first, and then having them ask other people. Hey, if I had a jam session at such and such bar or such and such neighborhood, would you come out on Tuesday nights on the occasion and you know come and play in, in jam? Would you do that? And if you start hearing from 10, 15, 20 maybe musicians that are like, yeah, I would love for a jam session to be in this area, and I would probably attend it somewhat regularly. Okay, you can go to that bar owner and say, hey, listen, I know that your Tuesday nights are a little slow. That's what you're telling me. I'd like to get you some more clients in here. Now, if you host a jam session on Tuesday night, and perhaps if you want even more incentive for musicians to come to this jam session, give a a percentage off or a dollar off drinks, a happy hour special, if you will, to, to help those musicians come. So anyone who has an instrument that's going to play at the jam session, they get a dollar off their drink. Well, that gets musicians in the door who want to play and jam and network for other gigs, perhaps. 
to go and spend some money at the bar, buy a couple drinks. Okay, so that's automatic customers coming in the door for that bar owner. And you can tell them right up front, I have about 15 or 20 people that say they might come regularly. Let's cut that number in half. Let's just say that the regular attendance for this is going to be 10 customers, okay? To 10 new people. And that's not including any other customers that might come because they just like the music or are interested in the music if you advertise it. These are just musicians that could possibly come to join the jam session. Well, now you're telling this bar owner straight up right away, hey, I have a potential audience of people that will already come just because they want to play, especially if you give them a discount. And that way you're going to be making more money than you were normally. Yeah, you're gonna have to pay the band, but you got to do the math and you might be attracting other people. So you got to like present it in that sort of way. You have to present the numbers. Now, the other thing is you do have to convince bar owners to try it for a while, okay? Because there's never going to be a transformation in one week. And some bar owners and venue owners really don't understand that at all. So what you have to convince them of is, you know, try this out for five months or six months. Here's how much money you will spend. Here's your total investment if you do this every single week for six months or five months or whatever time period you allot, that's how much you will spend. So that way the bar owner knows right away, this is how much money I'm investing and we can see if it works. If it doesn't work, just quit the music. You cut the music. At least the bar owner knows what he's getting himself into, but he also knows the potential for it to work. So if you have to present it that way, now guess what? You're going to get a lot of rejection and that's okay too. Uh, that's going to, I used to, man, when I was in college and I was really struggling for money, I would be hitting the streets of New York, just going bar to bar, talking to managers, talking to owners. And nine times out of 10, I was, I, I was not getting, I was not getting the sales there. Right. I mean, but every once in a while I would. And as a result of one of those, I ended up playing a brunch gig for five and a half years because of just hitting the streets and doing that. And I will say, most of the time, I was not doing it the right way, the way that I'm suggesting to you now. But I have some business chops now. I know a lot better. That's what I would suggest to you. Um, I could go a lot further into depth with this kind of stuff. But that's that's a basic answer to your question there. All right. That is all for the qu- time for the questions I have today. I wish I could answer some more. Again, sorry to those who do have questions. I have reserved a few for future episodes where I think I could actually do an entire episode on the question that was asked. So you'll have to stay tuned for those. But thanks again for everybody. I hope some of these questions helped the ones who asked them. And of course, the everybody who's listening got a little bit of something out of these. All right, that's all for today's show. I want to thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, and hey, if you want to help out the show, as I talked about at the beginning, uh, just go to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening service and leave a kind rating and review. It helps other people find the show and know that it's worth listening to. So yeah, thanks for doing that in advance. Really appreciate it. Uh, next time, we're going to have another great special guest on the show. So you'll have to stay tuned for next time to find out who that is. All right, I'll see you right back then. Thanks for listening to the LJS Podcast, brought to you by LearnJazzStandards.com. Subscribe to the series on iTunes, and don't forget to join our jazz community at LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash newsletter.
Hey, podcast listener, would you like to ask me a jazz question and get it answered here on the show? Then go to learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. That's learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. I look forward to hearing your question and answering it on a future podcast episode. LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash ask or find the link in today's show notes.